If you or someone you know falls victim to sexual assault or abuse, please call these 24-7 hotlines. The first one is the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 678-656-4673. The second one is the Child Abuse slash Sex Abuse Hotline at 1-800-422-4453. And the final one is the Teen Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-866-331-9474. Hey guys, it's Ari from Vox ATL, and today I'm here with Ms. Vinkayla Haynes. She's an advocate for sexual violence prevention and is a member of foundations such as the Biden Foundation and It's On Us. She's also a survivor of sexual violence herself, and today she is here to tell us her story on a platform where she can be heard. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm, we're just going to jump right in. Um, my first question I want to ask you is, how are you feeling? Um, I feel okay. I'm just kind of in this state of mind where I'm just focused on surviving, Mm -hmm. kind of taking a break from organizing work a little bit. I mean, I'm still doing like work around sexual violence, but I kind of want to take a step back Mm -hmm. because this work is exhausting, um, working with survivors every day. So just kind of practicing some self-care. Yeah, definitely. What is your day-to-day like? Um, my day-to-day like, I guess getting up, going to the gym, kind of just getting that sense of energy going. Um, Coming back home, I work remotely on sexual violence and also doing freelance work. So Mm -hmm. just doing like communications for sexual assault organizations, um, helping survivors across the United States. I'm currently focused on helping survivors at HBCUs, um, just working on content for social media, um, my speaking engagements. I have Mm -hmm. a lot of those coming up. So kind of just working on the content for that as well. Yeah, I love that. love that. So I want to talk to you about... Tell me your experience in college before and then after, because I want the listeners and the readers to really grasp like this isn't just something like, oh, it happened and it's over. Like it really does change things. Yeah. Um, So my first kind of experience or interactions with sexual assault didn't actually happen in college. Mm -hmm. Um, It started when I was a child, actually. So I was sexually abused as a child for five years Um, and then kind of just moving on from like high school and the kind of that teenage space. So it happened from the ages of 12 to 17. Um, I went off to college and I kind of thought that was a way for me to kind of just put my past behind me and move forward. Um, But it wasn't. Um, I was assaulted my freshman year while at Spelman in 2013. Um, It was about a week after new student orientation. Um, So during new student orientation, we had a brief conversation on sexual violence. and it wasn't very informative. They didn't tell us what Title IX was. They didn't tell us where we can get resources. Um, all they did was heck, say, hey, here's a rape whistle. If you're raped, um, blow this whistle, we'll come help you. But my assault happened off campus. Oh. So if I'm blowing this whistle, how can you hear me? And the apartments were probably like five to 10 minutes away from campus, but that's still a very, very huge distance for public safety to even hear me. So that kind of just, ruined my college experience, um, I would say. So it kind of just forced me into like organizing work, trying to deal with my trauma, which I kind of regret in some way because I felt like I needed to deal with my trauma first Mm -hmm. before going into organizing work. And I think that's an issue with a lot of activists and organizers. we're trying to still cope with our trauma and help other people, but you can't really help anybody if you're not helping yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of just coming out at my school, I faced a lot of pushback. There was some support, I will say that, from kind of just the campus community, um, particularly the students and my personal friends. But 
the institution itself, it was kind of just no help on my part. Um, when I did come forward about my assault and what happened, I was victim blamed by the dean. Um, she no longer works there right now, but I was victim blamed by her. It was just very, the questions of why were you wearing that? Why did you go to this guy's house? I thought this person was my friend. Oh, had, so you knew him? Yeah, I did. I had no interest in him sexually, romantically, anything like that. So when he decided to do that to me, it completely, like, just shocked me. Mm-hmm. So just to be victim blamed by my institution, an institution that was supposed to protect me and, like, guide me and nurture me, I just felt like my HBCU experience was ruined, and I just don't have that HBCU pride that mm-hmm. anyone else has. Um, so after college, I kind of just wanted I took a step back a little bit after college um kind of just to get myself together my mental health because it was just completely horrible I'm dealing with childhood trauma and college trauma so I just continued to just work on myself and then just get back into that work because I noticed after I left sexual assault still was not being handled that the way that it should there are more survivors coming forward more students dealing with trauma and the university or the college was just sweeping it under the rug. So I know I had to continue to fight, continue to push policies on campus, continue to work with administration. Um, and then it just extended from just not the ADC, but other HBCUs, mm. and then other colleges, and even K through 12. So yeah, I kind of just kept going. Yeah. And I just wanted to help these people because I just see myself in them. It's like the endless cycle and yeah. you just, you can't help but like right. need to stop it. Yeah. Um, my next question is, have you, you mentioned that your um, attacker was your friend. Have you seen him since? Did he face any consequences? Um, I have seen him since at a few parties, but in those moments I just left because mm-hmm. I'm not dealing with that. I don't want any interaction with you. Um, when I did report, since I was victim blame, I decided to not go forward with my case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did talk to like the athletic departments at Morehouse during the time. He was a quarterback for the football team. So he's not going to face any consequences. He was protected by it. Yeah, and the football team's not even that good. But um, he didn't face any consequences, and he ended up graduating on time, all of that, completely fine. Like, he was just free to do what he wanted to do. He's responsible, but he doesn't have to face anything. Um, My next question is, how important is it that victims speak out and they don't hold it in? Um, I don't want to kind of draw a negative stance on holding it in because everybody comes up comes out about their trauma on their own time. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it took me 10 years to come forward about my trauma as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, with college, it took me about one to two years. Um, so I think there's power in coming forward, though. Um, kind of just having that weight lifted off you. I remember when I first told my story, on Spelman's campus, and then I had the chance to tell my story when I introduced Vice President Joe Biden when he came to Morehouse. It just felt like a huge weight just lifted off because I was just holding so much in. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's just a way for you to kind of just get that burden off and just take that step forward into healing. So would you say it's more of a situation where it's like, don't force someone to open up if yeah. they're not ready, but it does, it is beneficial when you yeah. do? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Everyone does things on their own time. Yes, definitely. Um, my next question, I hate that I have to ask this question, but I just need it. It's, um, what advice would you give to young women trying to stay on a college campus, and is this something that you can prepare for mentally, physically, and emotionally? Is this something that girls or just 
young people in general when they're off to college? Is this something that like they just need to like be prepared for, like expect it to happen? And should they have like a protocol of this? Like that's my question, and I hate that like I have yeah. to ask like, oh, I mean, I'm better prepared just in case. Like, is this something that you like young people are able to prepare for? I don't think so because. It's just not something you expect. When I came to college, I did not expect to get assaulted within the first two months. Like, it wasn't even something that entered my mind. I thought I was in a very, very safe space where I could make friends, focus on my education, be happy, but it wasn't like With that. With the HBCU culture. Yeah, yeah it's like, like I was so family. happy. It was just, and then like one month, it just kind of all went down. But I don't think something that you can prepare for. I think it's something that... You can have these conversations with your family. You can have these conversations with friends before you come to college. Um, just kind of educating yourself on sexual violence, healthy relationships, what consent actually is and how consent shows up based on the person. Um, and not just only focusing on women who come to college, but men also, non-binary students, queer students, um, trans students, undocumented students, um, disabled students, just everyone. Um, I definitely think it's a conversation that needs to be had. Um, it's very unfortunate that when we do come to college, we don't have these conversations within our institution. Mm -hmm. Like, people don't know who Title IX coordinators are. People don't know where counseling services are, disability services, mental health services. Like, students don't know their rights, like Title IX, Title II, Title V, Title VII. Like, there's just no education on it. Um, I do want to say that I feel like in the AUC with Morehouse, Spelman, and also Clark, there has been a shift in how NSO um, talks about sexual violence and how it's presented. So there's more education now. Um, but when I was there, it was just, here's your rape whistle, blow it, call the police. <laughs> They'll come okay. you. But I feel like they're trying to make those necessary changes, but they're not there yet because when a student does come forward, and when a student does report, the help is not there. It's almost like their way of like, so for just your average person that doesn't go to that school, they're just kind of like looking into it. Oh, it seems like on the surface, oh, they actually take like really good precautions. Mm -hmm. But like when you're actually in that situation, it's like, okay, this was not like, this is not how this should right. be handled. Right. It's it's almost like damage control, I feel yeah. like. Just clean up, just clean it up, hide it, and make it yeah. look squeaky clean. And so they release those statements, we take sexual assault very seriously, mm -hmm. Sexual assault is more than just the education aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Like, once this actually happens, how do you respond to it? And responding to it is not sweeping it out of the rug. Or like a little letter that you post right. to make to keep everyone at bay. Right. It's, wow. Um, my next question is, we as a society often use the word victim to describe someone who is assaulted. I know I'm putting on the spot, mm -hmm. but if you could find an, an, another word, what do you think it would be? Um... I don't know if it even, it's even necessarily a word. I would just say a person that has experienced violence. Um, I never want to refer to anybody as a victim. Um, most people like to use survivors and some people don't. There's this kind of debate about the victim and survivor dichotomy that goes on a lot. But I think that we have to allow people who experience it, violence to like self-identify as what they want to instead of just pushing this label onto them. We also have to allow people to define those words for mm -hmm. themselves. Like, what does it mean to be a survivor? What does it mean to be a victim? And kind of just giving them the space to kind of work that out amongst themselves instead of just forcing it upon them. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think it's so much harder, since this, my piece, is 
mainly on, um, you know, rape culture in the AUC. And that has to do with, you know, HBCUs. Why do you think it's so much harder for black women to be believed in cases of sexual violence? Um, there's always this over-sexualization of black women. Um, and we always have to be asking for it or that we're fast or we like put this upon ourselves. Or it's kind of just this case of to keep it in-house, especially with HBCUs and the AUC. Um, we don't want to kind of put this negative spotlight on our black brothers or our black sisters or just black folks in general. We kind of just want to sweep it under the rug because we don't want the institution itself to have a negative image. We all know that HBCUs are highly underfunded. Um, so kind of this this negative image of sexual assault will result in people not wanting to come there, people not wanting to donate. So where did that leave us? Losing accreditation, people not being able to go to school and things like that. So it's kind of just this, we want to portray this positive black image, this black excellence, while also tearing down black women, mm -hmm. not believing black women, pushing them to the side and just not caring about their trauma. So we're just putting the the institution itself before survivors, and that's a problem. But I also feel like from a young age, black women are told, don't make a fuss, don't, you know, stay strong, like you don't want to be like the, the crazy ghetto black girl that's yeah. making a problem, internalize it. And I think that becomes extremely problematic and like detrimental to one's mental health if they fall victim or if they become a survivor of yeah. sexual violence because they have that what's been ingrained in their mind from such a young age. Um, what's been the biggest reward of being a member of organizations such as It's On Us and No More, the Biden Foundation? Um, I would think, I would say um, just being able to help people. I like helping people. I enjoy just connecting with people, especially survivors, just helping them, meeting their families, going to court with them, helping them with their cases. It just brings me so much joy to see people not only just heal, but to like continue to thrive and continue to be okay. Because I wish I had someone like me when I was going through my trauma, because I went through everything by myself. And I don't want anyone else to go through that. So I think my biggest reward is just like connecting with survivors, it's not the awards, it's not the opportunities I get to meet like politicians or celebrities or whatever. That's all fine, that's all cool, but how do we get people to be okay? How do we get people resources? How do we get people to heal? And that's what I'm focused on. Mm -hmm. You mentioned politicians, and some people say, you know, politicians are only they only care about certain groups yeah. of people so that way they can like seem like okay like almost seem like they care but they really don't so of the politicians and like the important people that you've met do you get the feeling that they actually care like they're actually like invested no um no so, no. <laughs> so a few years ago i went to dc to meet with the trump administration um, it was so stressful i went to meet with them about title nine um because you know that betsy devos is trying to well she's already had these proposed rules that are supposed to go into like law and be like set in stone so i went to dc to talk to the department of education about the proposed rules and about title nine and also hb 51 in georgia which was a mandatory reporting bill for survivors um when we also discussed hbcus um so kind of before we really got into the conversation of sexual violence in Title IX, um, I brought up the things that they were saying in the media. For example, um, Candace Jackson, she said over 90% of 
rapes her falls and that rape survivors who drink something along those lines of those who drink they're like that's their issue and they were asking for it so it's kind of just I let her know that 90% of sexual assaults are not actually falls. That's just, a, she just threw out a number. Right. I, like what? You it's can't do that. Like two to 10% that are actually false accusations. So for her to just throw out that number as someone who worked in the Department of Education, I felt it was very disrespectful. So I let her know that. Um, and then we went to talk about HBCUs. I talked about Morehouse. I talked about Spelman, Clark, Howard, every HBCU I've been to, honestly. Um, and I just felt like sh- she didn't care. Nobody at that table cared. It was different people in the Department of Education that was there. And it was myself and, like, other organizers from Atlanta. Um, we were there just talking to them. I just felt like when the white students that I was with, when they would talk about their PWIs, she would listen or they would listen, like everyone at the table. But when I talked about HBCUs or when my friend that was with me that graduated from Morehouse, when he talked about HBCUs, they were ignoring me. It was kind of like, Almost like looking down, like, mm-hmm, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, not even writing anything down, but when the white students spoke, oh, we're all in this. Taking notes. notes. Yeah, so I just felt like in that moment, they didn't really care, and that kind of hurt my feelings. So when I walked out of there, it was just a huge sense of emotion just, like, took over me. And also meeting with Kristen Gillibrand's office, Maxine Waters' office, although... Maxine Waters is a black woman. She wasn't there, but people that represented her were there. Um, and, and Gillibrand... She wasn't there either, but people that represented her were there. I just felt like when I brought up HBCUs, I wasn't heard. So it just or at, made, like you felt like you weren't as important. Yeah. So it just made me feel like, okay, why am I here? If you're not gonna listen to me as a black woman, if you're not gonna listen to the black experience, then why did I travel from Atlanta to speak mm-hmm. to you? Why am I talking about these proposed rules to Title IX? Why am I being so open about my story and the stories of other black survivors? if you're not gonna listen. So I just walked out and I just literally started crying. I was like, I'm here for no reason. Like the Department of Education doesn't care about survivors. They don't care about black survivors. They don't care about HBCU survivors. Like, it was almost like, why? Like, what am I doing here? This is this is pointless. Yeah. When you mentioned, you know, just she threw out just like a random like, oh, 90 yeah. percent. Like, that's that's disrespectful. But it's also problematic in a bigger sense when we're talking about like, women are already not believed. Right. So when you just throw out a number with no basis, you have yeah. no fact. Like, there are people that like they'll just take what you said. and Like, that's fact. Like, they don't go do it their own exactly. research. They don't go like, let me make sure this exactly. is right. They'll just be like, oh, she said it. That's right. And like. As a whole, that just completely, that's so problematic because when an actual victim or survivor comes forward with their story, they'll always have that, oh, well, 90%. So, like, can you really be believed? You can't really believe everything you see on the internet. You can't really believe anything that you hear comes come out of the mouth of a politician or even someone who works in a Trump event. They're going to say whatever supports their case and gets you exactly. on their side. Exactly. That's why research is important. Yes, fact check. Yeah. Another question that I have is, what, if you have any, what is a misconception about sexual violence that you want to debunk, if you have any? Because I know there are lots of things people just throw out, like, oh, you know, if if he wanted sex, why didn't he just, like, go to get a prostitute or something like that? And a lot of people don't know it's not really about sexual pleasure. It's about overpowering someone. So that's, like, an example. Do you have any other things that you've heard where you're like, that's completely false. Um, the the issue with alcohol and con- 
incidents is one that keeps like coming up, especially with college campus assaults. Um, just having this idea that if anyone is under the influence of alcohol, that they're responsible for what happens once they consume consume that alcohol. Kind of just shifting the blame onto the people who have experienced violence and kind of just taking it off the, per- the person that has caused harm. So if I'm under the influence and I'm just walking around at a party and someone assaults me, it's automatically my fault because I'm drunk and it's not their fault for preying on me. So that's kind of one of the biggest things that I always see. Um, and also that, especially with Hollywood and the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, one thing that really like aggravates me, I think, is the idea that anybody that comes forward wants to be paid. Mm, or wants attention, money, yeah. Like, or they want to be a star. Yeah. Name me one survivor of sexual violence that has become a millionaire for going against someone or for telling their story. It's not about money. Mm-hmm. If I'm putting my life on the line, my safety, my brand, my job to come forward about my abuse, why would it be for money? And why would I be lying? Everybody who comes out about their abuse against a person of power, a celebrity, a public figure, whatever, it's not a lie. Mm-hmm. People act like celebrities and public figures are incapable of rape because they make so much money and they have access to so many people Mm -hmm. sexually. Like, for example, R. Kelly. (laughs) He didn't touch these girls. Everybody wants R. Kelly. He has money. He would never prey upon women when he has women all over him all the time. These girls are fast. They're liars. They just want money. They want to be so famous. So we're going to completely yeah. ignore the facts and ignore the evidence because R. Kelly has money? And isn't he broke now? Literally. And also, like, pe- did people just forget? Like, he was with Aaliyah when she was 15. Exactly. 15. Falsifying marriage documents, falsifying her age. Like, we're going to completely ignore all of that because he's R. Kelly. Like... And he calls himself the Pied Piper, which if you know the story, the Pied Piper is about a, a, a person or a, a man. I don't know the exact story, but right. he he sings and he lures kids and they're never seen again. Do you want you want to be known as that? <laughs> okay. Okay. It's okay. so stressful. Like people act like R. Kelly is like the entire in, entirety of black culture. Mm-hmm. Like R. Kelly is not the definition of black culture. There's so much more music you can listen to. There's so many other artists you can support other than somebody that abuses black women and girls. Like, yes. how is this not registering in your mind? I definitely think, and what kind of, maybe it was just me being nitpicky yeah. because I'm always known as like, okay, you're just making problems with a net thing. But what I noticed in terms of mainstream media, you know, when, um, you know, Surviving R. Kelly came out, a yeah. lot of those, the, a lot of like the white Me Too movement, they, they were, it was crickets. It was Listen. like, I was like, what? Okay, Listen. where was your Me Too and Time's Up? Listen. Like, Honestly, so I remember thinking about that because I was going to tweet about it, but I decided to take a step back because I want to know what their response is going to be before mm-hmm. I say my response. Um, a lot of white women just tweeted and they were just like, um, well, I just wanted my black brothers and sisters to speak and I just wanted to center their voices. <laughs> Sorry, we haven't been centering our voices for decades, but now you want to... The floor is yours. 
what's the reason? Is it because you don't want to speak on the abuse that black women and girls have experienced? They've been experiencing this since slavery. Mm-hmm. And they're still experiencing it now. You didn't want to center our voices the entire time since the Me Too movement even came back up because it was started 10 years ago by Toronto Burke. That's what, and that's the fun, everyone thinks Alyssa Milano, she tweeted hashtag Me Too and be like, oh yeah, Alyssa Milano, like she totally came up with that. We Rose. never want to give the black women credit. Never. We never want to. And I feel like with her and Rose McGowan, they, they didn't offer space to Toronto like I felt that they should. I understand that you tweeted about Toronto Burke and you invited her to these award shows to be on the red carpet with you, but that's not what we talk about. That's not what I see or what I want when I talk about centering black women's voices. Mm-hmm. You guys have access to so many resources. So many, like so many platforms. Where, where, where is it? Bring her to an award show is like, okay. But like, is she speaking? You, just because you're bringing her there. Survivor. Yeah. Give her a platform. Use your privilege. Right. That's, I feel like that's a big thing. Like, use your privilege is not always a bad thing. It's what you do with it. Right. So if you know that you have privilege of having a platform and right. have a privilege of people actually listen to what you have to say, use your privilege and give the floor to her. Right. And it's also that when you do call them out on that, they get really upset. I remember someone called out Alyssa Milano and she was like, I'm a black woman, I'm a disabled person, I'm an immigrant, I'm all these things, I am you. So what we're not gonna do is take identities that don't belong to us and try to sympathize with us or whatever you're trying to do is kind of being very, very dismissive mm-hmm. and saying, oh, I've been fighting for these issues for 30 years, you don't know what I do. Mm. What did we get from that 30 year activism that you did? I got That's what charmed, I that's what I got. Because I I didn't even know she was an activist. I didn't know she was doing this for 30 years because what resources and what healing, what transformative, restorative justice did we get from Alyssa Milano's activism? That's what I don't understand. Yeah. It's like we take over these movements, we center ourselves, our stories, our narratives, and just forget the people that are the most vulnerable to this violence. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. understand that. The thing that caused me to like remember that was because I remember when Surviving R. Kelly first came out, mm-hmm. I didn't hear R. Kelly in terms of like a lot of the R&B stations, but what I, they played R. Kelly on like Power 96.1, which is, a, it's a pop, but like it's mm-hmm. white radio. I'm like, do you know what's going on? Like, <laughs> tact, hello? What is, do you know what that is? Do you know what is happening in the world? Why are you playing like Bump and Grind? Come on. Like you and also the fact that you've never played that on your radio station before. Ever. So why? Like is it just coincidence, bad timing? Are you completely unaware? And I think that's what like I, was, I talked to my father and I was like, what is happening? I honestly think sometimes it's just that people like to do that so they can get views and attention and mm-hmm. smart conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, my next question, since we got we really got into it, which I enjoyed. <laughs> um, my next question is so you have a big presence on Twitter. Yeah. How has social media allowed you to share your story and become an advocate? for sexual violence prevention? Um, It's allowed me to talk about issues that I'm passionate about. Um, Not just my personal story because I kind of like dimmed down a little bit on sharing my personal story. Mm -hmm. Um, Just sharing out resources for survivors and just giving me kind of the space to connect with survivors online. A lot of students 
message me on Twitter about their cases or just ask me questions about Title IX or like reporting and what they should do. And it's also given me the space to kind of just raise awareness about issues regarding sexual violence. For example, HB 51 in Georgia, um, which was a mandatory reporting bill, as I mentioned earlier, kind of just galvanizing students say, hey, this bill will affect you if it passes. Here's where that you can get involved. I would tweet every day about this build. I would tweet through the hearings that I was at. I would tweet about me testifying when I was in meetings, kind of just making sure that people are educated on what's happening around sexual violence and how they can get involved. And also offering education myself. Um, I would do threads on Twitter about what Title IX is, where you can find your Title IX coordinators, um, what your rights are as a student, what will happen if your rights are violated, what you can do, who you can reach out to. Kind of just continuing to like raise awareness and educate folks has mm-hmm. really been my my focus on social media. And I think a lot of people, you know, social media can be good or bad depending on what you yeah. do with it. And, you know, in the sense of like, Social media can be bad if you're comparing yourself to others, mm-hmm. promoting products that are harmful to others. Yeah. Oh, that time you tea. And that, in that sense, all those influencers. But it's yeah. like, imagine how much power if these influencers, like you know, Bella Hadid, Kim Kardashian, they who Selena Gomez, who have like hundred millions of followers, and it's like, oh, but I'm promoting flat time tea instead. It's right. like, think of all of the good that you could be doing if you use your voice for something else. And um, um, my second to last question is, um, on Twitter, you posted a picture of you at the gym in which you captioned it. <laughs> today was, yes, I stalked you. Um, today was actually the first time I walked around in the gym without a shirt and just a sports bra. I've always felt uncomfortable without a shirt, LOL, starting to love my body more and being unafraid to show it. Right. Could you tell me why you think it's important for survivors of sexual violence to love their bodies and no longer associate it with shame? Yes. Yeah, so um, since, as I talked about earlier, with being sexually abused as a child and experiencing sexual assault in college, I felt like my, and I was also in a domestic violence relationship in college, um, I felt like my body has went through so much violence and trauma, I didn't feel like it was mine. I felt like it was for like the consumption of others. So I wasn't happy with it because it's been through a lot. So I kind of just kind of hid myself. Like people will say I have a nice body, I have a nice shape, but I didn't see that for myself because of Trauma just kind of caused me to have a very low self-esteem, low self-confidence. So it's very important to reclaim yourself and work on your self-esteem after experiencing violence. Um, I was always shy going into the gym with just a sports bra because men are just, well, I'll say some men, I won't say all men, but men are just very, very aggressive and the sexual harassment is like increased at an all-time high when I go to the gym. So it kind of re-traumatized me in a way. But like over time, I had to learn how to love myself because I had to kind of engrave in my mind that what happened to me was not my fault. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't have to deal with this trauma for the rest of my life. I can heal from it. I can't change it, but I can accept it for what it is and Mm -hmm. learn how to move on from it. So I think that's very, very important because you have to learn how to love yourself. You have to learn how to exist in the world with loving yourself, taking care of yourself, and being proud of who you are, even though you were violated. I can only imagine because, I mean, I feel like everyone has insecurities, and I feel like in light of social media, the most 
thing that people are insecure about is like their body mm-hmm. and I can only imagine to add trauma on top right. of that would be just like so detrimental to right. one's self-esteem yeah. um, my last question is um, as a queer woman of color do you think that other queer people of color are more at risk of being victims of sexual violence yes um, just based on people the queer phobia homophobia transphobia misogyny patriarchy um Violence leads to violence. Um, Queerphobia is violence. Misogyny is violence. Um, Just racism is violence. So just all these, all these issues that society have has with the LGBTQ community leads to violence against them. And also, over twenty percent of Black women are affected by sexual violence. And with Native women, it's I I believe it's between seventy to ninety percent. Oh my God! Yeah, and nobody talks about that, which is the issue. Um, They're affected by sexual violence. It's just that, and Latino women as well, over thirty percent are affected by sexual violence. But nobody talks about that because these white faces and these white women is what society is focused on is what the media is focused on because they're seen as a perfect survivor so we're not really focused on other demographics or other marginalized groups um i think that's very important to highlight um very important to recognize um how people's views of other ethnic groups or other marginalized communities just leads to violence against them and having power over them yeah you mentioned, I know I said this was the last question, but you just said something like completely like stuck out to me. You mentioned something about being the perfect survivor. Yeah. Can you tell us what that is in terms of society's eyes? What um, is the perfect survivor? In terms of the media's eyes, the perfect survivor is white, um, cisgendered, heterosexual, Christian, white women. Um, I remember when I saw Tarana Burke speak at Morehouse, um, she mentioned that if you look for yourself, if you look for the Me Too movement in the media, you're not going to see yourself because the movement is not the media. The movement is within us. The movement mm-hmm. is within the space that she created for us. So I kind of had to remember that, that I can't look for myself and my healing and my validation of who I am as a survivor or who I am as a black woman in the media because the media is focused on portraying one story, not all stories. So I just kind of had to really remember, remember that. that. Wow, that's like so, sorry, that like hit me. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for being here. We're about to go do our photo essay. Um, so it's been Ari from Vox ATL with Ms. Fink Kayla Haynes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>